we celebrate what King does as a speaker, but the reason why people were willing to listen to what he had to say is because he didn't just talk the talk, he also walked the walk. Hi, and welcome to Conversations Beneath the Cupola, a Gettysburg College podcast. I'm Bob Giuliano, president of the college and your host. In our last episode, I reflected on 2020, which I think it's fair to say was a most unusual year for the college and beyond. I also offered some thoughts about 2021, thoughts rooted in the college's newly launched and ambitious strategic plan. This year, I look forward to working with colleagues across the Gettysburg College community to help us yet more fully promote the value of civic knowledge and engagement, to instill a yet deeper appreciation of diversity and inclusivity, and to further help our students become the leaders of today and tomorrow. These objectives have particular resonance as we approach Martin Luther King Jr. Day and honor someone who has made the world a better place through his actions and words. Given the continuing need to address issues of racial and societal justice, his life and words offer lessons of enduring relevance. In this episode, I am joined by two Gettysburg College faculty members who will help us more fully reflect on the words of Dr. King, Jennifer Bloomquist and McKinley Melton. Jen is a professor of linguistics and Africana studies, associate provost for faculty development and dean of social sciences and interdisciplinary programs. With a master's and PhD in linguistics, her research focuses on variations of African-American English. McKinley is an associate professor of English whose research focuses primarily on the relationship between cultural, political, and spiritual traditions and black diasporan literary and artistic expressions. His scholarly endeavors also include published essays on the works and writings of MLK. Jen and McKinley, thank you for joining us today in this really interesting and obviously very timely conversation um, as we approach MLK Day. Um, you both have backgrounds in linguistics. Can you say more about what the study of linguistics is and what it offers us as a means of understanding um, the world in which we live? Jen, do you want to start? Sure. Um, so linguists study language in a variety of ways for a number of different reasons. Um, so like the history of languages, language change, language acquisition, the neurological basis of language, and so on. Um, sociolinguists like me focus on the social functions of language. We look to what people do or don't do when they're using language and how they use language to accomplish social goals like establishing solidarity or building community. Um, no matter what the area of specialty, all linguists work to analyze and understand the components of language. So some of us work on structure, um, the grammar or syntax. Some of us focus on the sound systems of language. There are linguists that specialize in um, word meaning, for example. McKinley, what would you add to that? So I, I will say I am I'm not a linguist uh, um, by training. You know, I'm a I'm a scholar of literature, um, but I spend a lot of time thinking about uh, the value of language, the impact of language, the impact of rhetoric, um, and how language affects readers, how it affects audiences, how word choice and word delivery, in particular, whenever I start thinking about. Um, traditions of performance and orality, um, to think about how speech acts and utterance 
can operate as a cultural form, as a political form, and to create a particular impact on audiences. So I feel like there may be a bit of overlap there, um, you know, in a lot of what Jen is saying, but I like to be really clear about what, what I do and don't do. I will stay in my lane. I have to assume that your studies um, in your different ways, though, also influence the way in which you all teach, for example, the way in which you use language in the classroom. Uh, say a word or two about that. How does it affect your pedagogy? We don't have a linguistics program here at Gettysburg College, but I do teach linguistics classes. And I find that um, particularly when it comes to the fundamentals of linguistics or language science, my students are fascinated. They, they feel like it's knowing a secret um, because linguists look at language in ways that other people often don't. Um, and so I focus a lot on um, looking at the scientific analysis of language. A lot of people um, who are in McKinley's field don't love linguists for that, re <laughs> for that reason, because we're working really, really hard to, um, to make it a scientific study. And I think a lot of lit people feel that we strip the beauty of, um, of language use. Um, but I help my students understand that there are that oftentimes language use has so many subtexts that it's not just, um, it's not as, as careless and carefree as speakers often feel. And students know way more about language than they actually know. Mm. Um, and my job in the classroom is to get them to understand that they've spent a lifetime learning a language and they're actually really good at it. Oh, it makes perfect sense. I mean, it, you take the implicit and you try to make it a little more explicit and understand the architecture of what it is that we all do every single day subconsciously and maybe move it to the conscious. Uh, McKinley, um, how do you think about this? So I just want to go on record. I have no objection to linguists. I love linguists. Okay. My friends, some of my very best friends are linguists. Uh. <laughs> but yeah, I um, I do. I will agree that I, I'm, I get less interested in the science um, of language and uh, much more interested in the, I guess, the emotion of language and the feeling um, of language and to think about how language operates as a form of artistry, right? Um, you know, we think about the poetics of it, but it's also about the rhythm and the resonance. It's also about the way in which language is used to create meaning, the way that language uh, literature written and spoken is used to create a moment and to create a sense of a moment and a feeling in that moment, but also to articulate issues and to express ideas. So a lot of what I do with students in terms of language, not only as readers, but also as writers, is to focus on the clarity of expression and to really think about how do you best communicate the ideas that you're working to communicate and how do you do it in a way that is powerful and impactful and captures what it is you intend for your reader, for your audience, for your listener to get. Well, I can't think of a better lead into the central theme of our conversation today. And that is the way in which Dr. King used language to do precisely what you just articulated, McKinley, to inspire, to motivate, to inform, uh, to build consensus. Help us deconstruct, if you can, uh, the way he approached his rhetoric. The, why was he so effective in his ability to capture a moment and uh, capture a cause and to inspire folks? What is it about his approach that made him effective? 
there are a lot of things, and I'm going to try to not go on for too long here. Um, but there are a lot of things that I think are really powerful about um, King's rhetoric and King's language, right? In part, I think that King really understood uh, the importance of oratory as a as a performance. Um, I think he understood the value of rhythm and rhyme. He understood that language is an, is an oratorical or can be when wielded by the right person, an oratorical art form, right? And so there were ways that he was really intentional about stoking the emotions of an audience, reaching their sensibilities, being able to, to blend you know, logic with uh, passion in order to really create a lasting moment in, in order to best articulate the message that he was looking to articulate. And so I think that there's a real value in spending some time with his words and spending some time with what he's actually doing, because the words, of course, are beautiful on the page, but they're also amazing if you can listen to the recordings, uh, because you get a sense that for MLK, language was a largely about building a connection um, and about articulating a very clear and very uh, mission-driven sense of purpose for why he was giving the words that he was giving at any particular point in time. Jen, before you jump in, um, mm -hmm. McKinley, you've raised the question that I was gonna ask next, and that is, is it appropriate to separate um, style from substance here, or is the style necessarily effective given the content and the mission that you just articulated that he was seeking to achieve? I would say no. I would say no, I would not separate style um, from substance because I think that, um, I don't want to say the style was substance, but the style was substantive. Um, and so I don't think, I don't think it would be fair to, to, to separate the quote unquote, the flourish of the language from the, the import of the um, subject matter and the content for what it was King was, was attempting to deliver because I think they're one in, the, one in the same. And had he not been talking about the things that he was talking about, I don't know that he would have needed the strategies that he deployed through his use of, of words and rhetoric. Jen, what do, you, what do you make of this? One of the things that I wanted to point out, so you ask how King um, helped to prompt some of these larger discussions about social justice. And I agree with McKinley. I think that Martin Luther King, like other great American orators, um, particularly those who um, got their early experience in the black church, in black churches, I should say, um, you know, have a relationship re with relate with language that is largely performative, and that's um, that certainly is is a part of black preaching style and black culture. Um, I think one of the reasons that King was so skillful in inspiring and motivating um, and why his message has such longevity is because also of content. Um, even though he was chiefly concerned with fighting for black America, a good deal of his message embraced larger themes of universal peace, grace, dignity, justice for all people. He didn't make the fight for black equality only about blacks. And I think that's one of the things that's really important for us to remember. He reminded his audiences that the struggle for racial justice was the responsibility of all Americans. Um, he talked frequently about justice and equality for all God's children. He encouraged brotherhood among all people. Um, we have statements from him like injustice everywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. 
Um, and that part of his, mi of his mission transcends race and is, in, is translatable to other movements. Um, I think his message of unity and nonviolent resistance is something that appeals to majority audiences. I think one of the really important parts of this conversation that I wanna make sure we don't lose is that in large part, the value of King as a speaker was also because he backed up his words with action. The understanding of King as a writer and as an orator has to go hand in hand with the understanding of King as an activist and an organizer, right? And so one of the things that I think is really valuable is that we, we celebrate what King does as a speaker, but the reason why people were willing to listen to what he had to say is because he didn't just talk the talk, he also walked the walk. Um, and I think that that's a really important thing to, to always bear in mind that we talk about, you know, for instance, the I Have a Dream speech, and I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about that more later, right? But the important thing is that the I Have a Dream speech was the centerpiece of the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. It was the centerpiece of a massive organizing effort that was about moving legislation, that was about establishing policy, that was about creating substantive change that wasn't just about papering over the moment with words, but was really about how do we find the right words to help guide us through the action of the moment. You both have referenced his um, training in the pulpit. Um, how did that shape the way he approached language and persuasiveness? So King, like other um, speakers, as I mentioned, um, who were forged in black churches like Jesse Jackson, like Louis Farrakhan, um, who are also really good examples of employing black preaching style um, in the in the secular realm. Um, King purposefully employed some different linguistic variables to situate his speech, not only regionally, but ethnically and stylistically. And I think that's one of the things that helped him connect with and beyond audiences before him. Um, he relied really heavily on his background as a preacher and it was exceptionally good at performing his speeches. Um, like McKinley mentioned before, he gathered his own energy from his audience, which is typical of good black preachers. Um, we have this rhetorical tradition, a linguistic tradition in black churches that has been heavily studied and also that is more of a community event. Um, and McKinley can speak to this as well. There are, are these um, black preaching styles that are evident in King's speeches and his sermons that are designed particularly to connect with the audience, which is really, really important part of black church culture. Um, and so some specific things that he did, and you know, we see these in his most famous speeches, we see it in I Have a Dream speech, um, is that like other black preachers, he used analogies that bridged everyday experiences to the aspirational. Um, he used rhetorical strategies like call and response or alliteration, repetition. We see significant repetition in King's speeches um, that brings the audience back to his point. He also does some things that are really typical of black preaching styles, changes in volume or pitch or rhyme. Um, he uses abrupt starts and stops. And, and this, is a, this is a black preaching method. Um, there's a linguist, Geneva Smitherman, who calls this tonal semantics, which is the use of rhythm and inflection to convey meaning. Um, so it's beyond just the words. 
Um, and he also, you know, King was gifted at what we call code switching. So he used African-American English, which is um, sort of, you know, the most comfortable in black churches and in black preaching. But he also used general American English, which helped establish him with um, audiences who were more familiar with language of wider communication in the United States. McKinley, I know you've studied this, the, the boundary between this and music um, strikes me as a, a very fluid one, at least. And I, I believe you've, you, you've paid attention to this in the work that you're doing. I, ha I have, and I, you know, I wanna echo a lot, of what, um, a lot of what Jen has said about these, these various different uh, stylistic elements of the black worship experience and the black church experience, which absolutely blends musicality rhythm, pitch, meter, you know, uh, timbre, all of those kind of musical elements that come out throughout the, the vocal performance and throughout vocal expression. I'm thinking a lot about, you know, one of my favorite collections of poetry from the Harlem Renaissance is James Weldon Johnson's God's Trombones, where he talks about the preacher as mimicking a trombone as an instrument with their oratorical delivery that captures all of the emotions of humanity and does so in ways that are very, very uh, musically resonant. Um, but the other point that I, I want to add that I think is also really important here is that as we're talking about emerging from the community of worshipers of the Christian church and the Southern Baptist church specifically, it's important that we're thinking not only about the ways in which the uh, stylistic elements inform the worship experience, but also to remember that the worship experience is ultimately an experience that is grounded in a particular set of faith-based principles, right? It's grounded in um, ideology, it's grounded in a particular substance. And so, you know, any preacher worth his or her salt is not just going to give you the ornamental aspects of the worship experience, but they're going to give you the substance that, that, that congregants come looking for as well. Because if you come in with all of the ornaments of you know, great performance and speech, but you never once reference the Bible or you never once reference you know, ideas that are actually resonating with your audience, the church mothers are gonna look at themselves and gonna say, well, that was a really pretty poem that they just did, but that wasn't, <laughs> right? As I think about the I have a dream speech and the conversation that we've had where so much of his style derived from the heritage of black, uh, of black religious traditions. Yet he was speaking in that moment to a much broader audience as well. He was trying to change a culture, the majority of which would not have been familiar with the traditions that inspired his approach. How did he navigate in that speech, at least from your perspective, how does he navigate that duality of purpose? That is the sort of um, the animation of the core constituents, but reaching a broader audience, uh, the familiarity of the rhetorical framework that he's accustomed to, but yet again, that the society as a whole probably wasn't accustomed to. So how did he navigate that in uh, the speech um, and what made it so effective given those challenges? I, I think that's a really well-crafted speech, and that's why um, we hold on to it so dearly um, all these years later. What he did was he was selective in using um, what translates to wider audiences and what doesn't. So, um, you know, if you look at the I Have a Dream speech, most Americans are familiar with the beginning and the end. Um, and it's really too bad because it's a great speech throughout. 
Um, but at the beginning, you know, here you have, he's, he's at the Lincoln Memorial, and he begins by invoking Lincoln and references um, the enslavement of African Americans. Um, he reminds his audience of the promise of the Constitution and points out that it's a promise yet unfulfilled for Americans of color. Um, and then you can see the, um, the speech build in the way that a sermon would in terms of energy. Um, and he uses this gathering momentum. I mean, this is a unique opportunity, right? We had never seen anything like this um, in the United States. And so he uses this gathering momentum and uses the spotlight, the media spotlight on the March of Washington. He knows that this is going beyond the people who are there. Um, and he uses that moment to make an explicit appeal to whites for allyship, but also for reckoning. Um, at one point, he even says, many of our white brothers, as evidenced by their presence here today, have come to realize their destiny is tied up with our destiny. Um, so he both invites and implicates whites in the same speech. And this is a brilliant strategy. People who look at um, black preaching styles and black language often point out that there are many layers of meaning. Black um, speakers, black preachers, black media um, figures often have to craft their messages on several levels. One, that reaches the wider audience, but then one also that sort of gives a shout to their, um, their base, their local constituents. And so he blends these two um, parts so that he's not seen as abandoning his heritage. He's not seen as not being a black preacher. Um, but he also has this other message that's overlaid for the wider audience. And he cites things that are important to Americans in general, like Lincoln, um, like the Constitution. He refers to it several times. And then the end, he finishes this speech with the I Have a Dream stanzas. Um, and this is an appeal to all of the audience to realize the best possible version of America. And the, his final call in that speech is um, the way that he, he frames it, no one can really argue with the idea of children holding hands, right? Um, and that there's this brotherhood and that there's this call for peace and unity. I agree. So the I Have a Dream speech is, is one of my favorites um, to teach um, for so many reasons, but among them is a lot of the reasons that Jen has, has pointed out about just literally the, the it's just a really good speech. <laughs> um, but the thing about it that I find is, is really uh, powerful is that as I often tell students, it is one of the most widely read and least understood speeches in American history. Um, I think that it is one of the most misunderstood speeches uh, largely because the way that King taps into all of these beautiful sentiments and optimistic ideas, I think can often be the, the positivity that folks want to zoom in on, uh, as opposed to really, really delving into the depth of the contours of the speech in the way that Jen has just done, right? So I often like to, you know, I've had classes, uh, for instance, my literature of the civil rights movement course, where we have spent the entire class period just going over this speech line by line to really think about what is it that King is actually doing here and what is it that he's actually accomplishing. And so one of the things that I love about the speech is 
the kind of, you know, the off the cuff opening, right? So the, the initial speech formally begins with, you know, the homage to Lincoln, but there's that opening greeting where he says, I'm happy to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. And so that feels like a fairly innocuous statement. But then when you realize that he's making this statement while Lincoln is literally at his back, <laughs> while he is quoting from the Declaration of Independence and he's quoting from the Emancipation Proclamation, that he's literally telling his audience, yeah, I know all about the Declaration of Independence and the Emancipation Proclamation. Those will pale in comparison to what we're doing here today, because today is really the moment where we are actually pushing this nation toward freedom. And so there is, as I always like to say to students, there's a certain shadiness in that comment. Um, <laughs> but I think it's really intentional and it's really purposeful because people gravitate toward King's rhetoric about freedom and liberty, but they don't always ask the important questions about what is he saying freedom and liberty actually are here? When is he saying it's actually going to be accomplished here? And so, you know, everything around the Emancipation Proclamation, everything around the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, King is really intentional about framing all of that as a promissory note, right? Which is, as I often describe to my students, if you want to talk to Americans in language they understand, you want to use patriotism, <laughs> you want to use Christianity, and you want to use capitalism. And he's coming at this from a very capitalist sensibility that you borrowed money and you owe it, right? You made a promise and you need to come through on your debt because that is who we are as Americans. We honor our debts and we don't take handouts. And you have been taking handouts from the black community for years. And now we're coming and saying the bill is due and you're telling us it's insufficient funds. Well, we refuse to believe <laughs> that this nation has insufficient funds. And so there's a very intentional strategic and I would argue very critically minded way of thinking about the language of promises unfulfilled and debts that have been unpaid. And so lastly, and I'll try not to go on for too long, but I get very excited. Jen was also <laughs> pointing out, you know, people talk a lot about the opening and the closing of the speech, because of course you have that beautiful soaring crescendo of I have a dream, I have a dream. Um, but one of the lines that I also think is, is quoted most often and so incorrectly right, is this idea that one day we will not be judged, you will be judged not by the color of your skin, but by the content of your character. And I think that that's a really important idea that King is advancing. And a lot of folks have seized on this idea as one that, you know, suggests the need for a colorblind society and the need to, you know, they use this language to attack affirmative action. They use this language to attack what they consider as racial preferences. And I think that for me, the most important part is not the, the beginning clause, but the final one, where King says, judged not by the color of your skin, but by the content of your character. A person's metal is not in the color of their skin, but it's in how they live their creed. It's in how they embody their principles. It's in how they demonstrate their character through a daily commitment to the things that they say that they hold dear. And so the entire speech for me is about accountability, but there is a way that we have, you know, historically looked to it as a speech about dreaming and a speech about hopefulness and a speech about a desire and a want for something um, that lies often maybe beyond ourselves. And I don't think that's what King is going for here at all. I think it's, it's a speech that is really intentionally about promises that have been made and debts that are owed and responsibilities that we have to live our creeds and not just, as I've said before, not just talk the talk, 
but really, really commit to walking the walk of who we are as American citizens and what, what this country owes to, to one another. If we had more time, I think it would be really interesting to explore whether the um, understanding of the speech as you both have described it, um, or the narrowness of the understanding of the speech has been incidental or purposeful. That is, has it been something that society as a whole has encouraged precisely because it's the easier part of the speech to connect to? It doesn't compel us to, um, to examine ourselves and to examine our history in quite the same way. We probably don't have time to do a deep dive into that, but McKinley, I can see I want to at least go into it. I know we don't have a tremendous amount of time, but I do want to make a point about that because I think that the question you ask is a really important one, right? And this idea of how do we grapple with the legacy of MLK is really important as we're moving into the MLK holiday and as we're thinking particularly in January of 2021 with everything that's happening in the world. And one of the things that I, I've often been frustrated by, you know, people talk about the sanitization of uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and the ways in which we, we basically try to clean him up in order to make him more palatable for the historical record. And one of the things that I think is really important that we have to really reckon with is that the intentional, I would argue, sanitization of MLK has also done us the disservice of sanitizing the times in which he lived and sanitizing the opposition that he faced. Because when we only talk about King as a beautiful orator who spoke of hopefulness and justice and freedom, but we don't think about him as an activist and we don't think about him as an organizer, we don't think about him as someone who marched across the you know, Edmund Pettus Bridge, when we don't think about all of those other things, then I think we run the risk of reducing the times of the civil rights movement into a time period where there were just a whole bunch of misguided people who simply needed a good speech and a good strong <laughs> talking to in order to see the error of their ways and then they just came around. And I think that we, we do ourselves a disservice to understanding the, the very gritty and very hands-on and often very violent nature of organizing for civil rights because it also allows us to forget how violent the opposition was. The life of John Lewis and the way it was reflected on very much put that um, into the American consciousness again. And somehow in his life, we managed to be reminded of it in part because of his enduring activism, as you were saying from the outset here, McKinley. So I have one last question, which is making it a little bit more parochial and it's focusing on us as a college. And so you all know that we are very much committed to uh, graduating students who are able to go out there and make a difference in the world. How do we capture the sort of essence of what King did and how he did it, whether rhetorically and through activism, what lessons do we have as a college that we should be taking on board, particularly as we start a strategic plan that McKinley is you know, co-chairing one of the big committees of? How do we move this forward in a way that is um, harvesting the wisdom and the experience that King's life and words offer us? Jen, do you want to start? Sure. Part of what I want to start with is um, where McKinley ended last, which is it's not just the fact that um, if we sanitize history, we sanitize the opposition to King, but it's also the case that I think our students get the um, wrong idea that King enjoyed and all civil rights leaders enjoyed this sort of fame and, and goodwill from across 
the entire community. And I don't think that that was true. Um, I think that when we talk to our students about the legacy of Martin Luther King and the ways in which they can um, continue his life's work, the first thing I think we need to do is I think we need to encourage grace and generosity in our students. Much of what we learn from MLK is the value of inclusivity, openness, kindness, um, and a lot of our students, I think, are already so closed off to the experiences of others. I think that we need to model empathy and expect it from our students as well. Um, and while I think it's important for us to teach our students how to communicate with compassion, I think we also need to teach them to listen with it as well. Um, we need to be honest with our students that working for social justice is hard and that this kind of change can take a really long time. Um, I think it's likely in most cases that what students are committed to and are working for now, these changes won't happen in their lifetimes. Um, but just because they may not see these changes or changes in the way that they'd like to see change, it doesn't mean that that isn't worth doing the work. Um, and this is exactly, um, you know, I referenced the I've been to the mountaintop speech before, but it's exactly the way King ends that speech as well. He says that we have some difficult days ahead, um, and he says it doesn't matter to him. Um, he's been to the mountaintop, and he sees the possibilities of what can be. Um, he says he's seen the promised land, and he said, I may not get to the promised land with you, but we will get there. And I think as we move forward with a new curriculum, these are the things that we should think about. How do we build empathy in our students? How do we build generosity? Um, citizenship is a really, really important segment of education, of educating the whole person. Um, and those are, those are things that I think we should focus on. You get no disagreement from me at all on all of that. The lessons that he offers about how to inspire and how to connect um, if our students want to bring about change, they need to figure out what the means are. They can't do it alone, right? It takes a coalition. McKinley, I'll let you have the last word. Um, so I, I would say again, um, as I often find myself in the position, I agree wholeheartedly with everything Jen has said. Um, <laughs> and I would add to it, for me, I think one of the really important things about uh, a, a really thoughtful engagement with King is that he brings his whole self to his work, right? Even as we've seen from our conversation today, the experiences not only as a preacher, but as the son of a preacher. How has he invested his lifetime in the Black church and in those spaces and in those audiences into his work? King is a tremendous scholar, right? He comes to nonviolence because he studies nonviolence in global movements, right? He comes to his work largely as, as an intellectual. One of my favorite uh, writings by him, which we didn't get a chance to talk about today is the letter from a Birmingham Perfect. city jail. Absolutely. Which I love this letter because he is, he is quoting people while sitting in a jail cell. He's got these, you know, these, these quotes offhand to reference these folks. So he is, a, he is a scholar of world civilization. He is a scholar of history, of religion. He studies movements. He's, he's thoughtful. And he's also someone who is always open to learning more. And it's important to understand that his movement toward an understanding of class comes over a career because he's open and receptive to learning and he's open to growing and to changing his viewpoints. And so there's an intellectual flexibility 
to the arc of his career that I think it holds real value for our, for our students as we're helping them to think about how do you think holistically about the world in which you live? How do you bring to bear the full weight of your knowledge, of your experiences, of everything you bring to the table while still recognizing that you have so much more to gain if you can, as Jen has pointed out, be a thoughtful and attentive listener. If you can explore and, and pull together the resources at your disposal to say, I bring a lot to this conversation. I bring a lot to my work. Here's what I can gain and here's how I bring it all together in order to go forth and, and to do the work that must be done and to, to live the life that I, that I know I'm, I'm meant to lead. And so I think that there's something really important about watching all of that culminate in what, in what King does throughout his speeches, throughout his writings, and throughout the life that he lives that I think can really hold some valuable lessons for our, for our students. And I think it's incumbent upon us as, as educators to, to help steer students toward those lessons by giving them his, his, his writings and his readings and by teaching about him in a more holistic way and not just the two or three quotes that always get um, kind of recycled. Which strike me as all the more important in these days when students are exposed to brevity of communication being a form of emphasis rather than depth and, and, and uh, nuance. Um, what a phenomenal conversation. I'm very uh, indebted to both of you for bringing um, this perspective and this understanding. And I think that for our audience who will listen, they will leave with a deeper appreciation for some of the complexity and some of the work they have to do uh, to truly better understand this remarkable man's lives and how they can model some of that in their efforts to help change the world around us. So um, thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you for having us. Let me conclude with a slice of life from Gettysburg College. In more ordinary times, the college acknowledges MLK Day through programming that brings the community together and gives us a chance to engage in the very reflection Dr. King's life and words compel. Last year, for example, we were treated to a rousing performance by Damien Sneed at the Majestic Theater, a musician whose work is inspired by Dr. King's spoken word and whose shows celebrate different aspects of African-American musical traditions. While the pandemic has made it impossible to come together as we would, the college has found a different and powerful way to mark the day. The Office of Diversity and Inclusion, in collaboration with the YWCA Gettysburg and Adams County and South Central Community Action Programs, is selling yard signs featuring some of the inspiring words of Dr. King. All the proceeds from the sign sale will benefit the Adams County Career Aid Project, which assists local, low-income youth and adults with costs related to post-high school education and training. Quotes on the sign include, hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter, and I still have a dream. Dr. King's words inspire action, and I am grateful for the response of this community to the continuing urgency of the message he so powerfully articulated. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this conversation and want to be notified of future episodes, please subscribe to Conversations Beneath the Cupola by visiting gettysburg.edu or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a topic or suggestion for a future podcast, please email news at gettysburg.edu.
Thank you. And until next time.